Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. That's right. It is live. We are back from the summer holidays. Yeah, that's right. And Happy New Year. Yes. How are you going, Rebecca? I'm very good. I'm looking forward to 2019. Ah, yes. A much better year. Yes. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> well, last year was a long slog, but uh, yeah. as we were hearing from Stick Together, there's a bit of movement going on in the uh, industrial landscape, people fight, standing up and fighting back, and uh, this is all good news. So yep. 2019 is going to be a happening year. Can't uh, afford to uh, let it pass, can't afford to let them uh, push people around because once you give something up... It's very hard to get it back. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm really happy that even over this uh, period when you know the capitalists take a break and uh, <laughs> uh, just you know go go down the beach, trash the beach and stuff, uh, then there's still been a lot of action going on um, and activity, people standing up for their rights and uh, standing up against racism and yeah, it's yeah. really exciting that you know. There's that rather strange affair down in St Kilda mm, Beach, yes, with uh, uh, which was a flop for the um, far right. Yeah, well, most of their activities are a flop. Yeah, exactly, outrageous, and this, as it should be. Uh, in today's program, we're going to go up to the Murray Darling Basin. You might have heard about the. Just the flabbergasting um, amount of dead fish down uh, running. Uh, they they said millions of dead yep. fish. It's just incomprehensible um, that, that this should happen. So I went and um, checked it out to figure out what it was that was going on there. So I got to speak to Rod Campbell from the Australian Institute, who th- their organisation has been putting out reports regarding Environment. They do a lot of uh, investigations into uh, important issues uh, uh, within the Australian context, uh, and the environment, of course, is one of them. So uh, I was able to ask him more about what's going on because they've got an ongoing watch of the Murray Darling Basin plan. So yep. that's pretty interesting. We're going to follow that hopefully with a chat with uh, Joe Toscani. Tano about the uh, Tanaminaway and Melboyhini Memorial, which is on tomorrow. Great. Yeah, 12 to 1. If that doesn't turn up, uh, we'll give you – he's um, maybe 
unable to answer his phone, so that may or may not happen. And you've got someone we're going to have a yarn with. Yes, Izzy Brown uh, has been down on French Island doing some uh, sailing practice for Sail for Justice, so we're going to catch up with her and uh, find out what the latest plans are and how you can support what they're doing. Yeah, good. And uh, Don Sutherland, who's going to pick up some um, of the... uh, uh, threads regarding uh, things like you may it might have uh, entered your radar, uh, Danny Lim, who is a elderly fellow but a per- persistent campaigner in yes. Sydney, who uh, <laughs> uh, was uh, roughly treated and uh, taken away by the police, and now they apparently ins- it's not the first time. Really, mm. that's right for but, a sign. Yeah, and yeah. he he won the case. Um, the previous case. But this time they're going to put a fine on him. Mm-mm. Anyway, uh, uh, Don lives in Sydney, so he, he should actually be able to give us some more information about that, And uh, which is, you know, it's a bit worrying, you know, people uh, expressing their opinions like this being uh, shuffled off because they're, what, inconvenient? This is a bad sign. Yep. It's like the canary in the mines, if you ask me. And uh, But then there's other things as well. The... Uh, Important win in Wollongong, which is uh, uh, um, we'll report on this next week on Stick Together. But uh, the CFMEU at Wollongong um, Coal uh, had a win where uh, the uh, the uh, workers there were um, casuals are now to become permanent. Very important win, and uh, moving on to superannuation, perhaps. Anyway. Uh, important uh, things going on all over the place. We continue to honour Tana Minowait and Marboy Hina, and in doing so, we acknowledge all the achievements of our people against oppression. Join us to commemorate the two freedom fighters, Tana Minowait and Marboy Hina, on Sunday, 20th of January, midday to 1 pm. Come to the ceremony at the Tanaminoe and Malboyina Monument, corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets, Melbourne. Bring flowers. After the ceremony, walk to the Queen Victoria Markets to their final resting place. So many of my people have fought and died for our country, for our environment and for each other. Honour all the Aboriginal people who have been killed for protecting their lands, their families, culture and way of life. We're not going to stay silent and we need all you fellas to stand with us in this fight for justice. If you can't be there in person, tune into 3CR midday to 1pm Sunday, 20th of January for a live broadcast of the ceremony. And you're back. We're going to now, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and... uh, it's our first live program for 2019, so we'll go directly to my chat with uh, Rod Campbell from the Australia Institute about the fish kill on the uh, Murray-Darling Basin. When I first saw that there had been an enormous death toll of fish in the uh, Darling River system, a Murray Murray Darling River system. Uh, when I saw it on TV, the it was politicians who were talking about it. It wasn't, say, scientists or CSIRO, which would have been what would have happened in the past. It that indicates that the whole of the issue of water in the Murray Darling system is a political 
an economic uh, maelstrom. Can you talk to us about what's actually happening? Uh, why, first, there has been this dramatic fish death rate? Yeah, so I, I'm not a scientist, and you're quite right. <clears throat> Traditionally, you'd expect uh, scientists to be out there on the news uh, explaining why such a thing had happened. I mean, I think the basic uh, scientific explanation is uh, that a, uh, the hot weather um, and caused a large algal bloom to you know, lots of algae in the water in the Lower Darling and then actually a cold snap uh, killed all the algae and the decaying algae uh, in that process of decay uh, took all the oxygen out of the water, uh, and the fish died. Suffocated um, them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, things like that in the past, obviously we've had hot spells and cold spells in the past, but there's very little water in the river, uh, and, they've been, you know, and that's been the case for generally for quite a long period of time. And so the ecosystem and the fish are already under stress, and so... Uh, this uh, algal, algal bloom and death um, was the, the last straw for a lot of those uh, fantastic fish. Now, the Murray-Darling Basin is the biggest water system in Australia, and it goes from Queensland, it affects Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria. Uh, so uh, we were... We, and the ACT. And the ACT. And the ACT. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, that's where you're from. Uh, well, yeah, that's where you are. About this. Yes, that's right. Now, now, people in general uh, have thought that. I mean, you know, it's registered that it's a, uh, the management of this watercourse is of priority because, of course, Australia is quite um, Australians and Australia is quite uh, clearly. Uh, aware of the importance of water to survival uh, and uh, so you know the politicians got together and you know there was a plan there's supposed to be a plan uh, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder the CEWH is supposedly the statutory body that's supposed to be dealing with the overview of the situation aren't they but there's problems yeah, so let's let's go right back for a minute, um, or maybe not right back. Obviously, Indigenous people have been living in the Murray, what's now the Murray Darling Basin, for a very long time. Um, I, I don't know much about across the whole basin, but I do know that in in that Lower Darling region, <clears throat> the Barkindji people still have a very strong connection to the river. Uh, the Indigenous name for the Darling River is the Barker. And that's where they take their name from, the the Barkindji. It means people of the Barker River. Um, so people have been there for a very long time. Um, and in you know, modern European Australian history, uh, fighting over the water and the resources of the Murray Darling has been going on uh, since and probably before Federation. It was certainly quite a big issue in Federation. Uh, on how, <clears throat> how to divide up um, water amongst the states. And back then, of course, there were lots of paddle steamers, and so navigation was quite a big issue as well. Um, so 
while you know, we don't have as many paddle steamers anymore, the issue of who gets the water in the Murray-Darling Basin uh, is, has been a, a big deal in Australian politics for a very long time. Um, I, I guess to, to prevent our discussion going on for hours and possibly days, if we fast forward to 2007 uh, was when, uh, under John Howard, the Federal Water Act came in, uh, <clears throat> which, which brought the Commonwealth into managing the Murray-Darling Basin or bringing it a role for the first time. Yeah, because previously all that water, as it flowed through the states, they would have considered it to be their right to manage, right? Yeah, that's right. And one one thing I found quite interesting when I started working uh, on Murray-Darling Basin issues was that under the Constitution, as we were saying, the management of the Murray-Darling Basin was quite a big issue at Federation. And so under the Constitution, the Commonwealth actually doesn't have any power over the Murray-Darling Basin. So the yeah, because there was way... a lot of concessions. There were a lot of concessions that had to be negotiated in order for Federation to actually exist, that balance of power yeah. between the states and uh, a new federal government. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, the, so when John Howard... Uh, negotiated the, the Modern Water Act, you know, we, we were in an era where the navigation of paddle steamers isn't such a big deal, but huge industrial-sized irrigation sucking all the water out um, really was an issue. <clears throat> and so the Commonwealth came in with a, with a kind of oversight role uh, and the, the Water Act and other legislation that led to um, the modern or the current setup of administration really began there. And it began, the, the kind of bit I think is interesting, is the only way the Commonwealth legally has any say in the Murray-Darling Basin relates not to anything uh, about it in the Constitution, but to our international agreements. So it's things like the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands for Migratory Birds, and other international environmental treaties that we've signed, um, they're what brings the Commonwealth in. So even from that sort of early <coughs> uh, basic standpoint of our current water legislation and regulation, uh, it, protecting the environment and managing our the amazing ecosystems in the Murray-Darling Basin is, is pretty fundamental to its legislative and legal um, foundation. Obligations. Yeah, yeah. So what we've got uh, is the Balancing Act between uh, using the water for economic purpose, the uh, recreational purposes, environment and other kind of elements that have uh, traditionally used uh, the water that flows through that system. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we see you know, eco uh, environmentally disastrous things happening, like huge numbers of ancient fish going belly up, um, one, one thing that we need to start thinking about is if we're not fulfilling our environmental obligations to various international agreements, then the Commonwealth actually doesn't have any power anymore. So 
But also that there's a sort of fundamental lack of practical understanding of uh, why uh, the ecology, uh, the environment, needs to be maintained in a healthy state. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'd sort of gotten sidetracked from the issue that um, the environment is, <laughs> of course, you know, I, of course, managing the environment is, is fundamental to uh, the, the whole point of the, the Water Act, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, um, and the various bureaucracies that we've got set up. So just moving on, um, John Howard brought in the 2007 Water Act, and now our, the basin is largely managed by three key federal agencies. That's the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources, and as you mentioned, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, uh, which a lot of people refer to as the CHEW. <laughs> now, um, because, can, because, of, because of its acronym. Yeah, yeah. Can, can we go to, say, an example of how this system is actually failing and probably is one of the reasons for why uh, we've just had this big fish kill. And and uh, as you pointed out to me when I asked you to do this interview, that it inf it frustrates you because this dramatic event brings people's attention to what's going on, but this has been a death by a thousand cuts in actual fact. Absolutely. When, when we were discussing that, I, I was really thinking of... Uh, the Australia Institute's work on the Lower Darling and the Menindee Lakes region over the last year or so. Uh, I, I've only been out there once, but our senior water researcher, Marianne Slattery, has been out there a number of times. <clears throat> um, and we've really seen how the uh, management of the Menindee Lakes and the Lower Darling have had a dreadful impact on the people of the Lower Darling uh, in communities like Carry, you can't shower in the water. There's terrible stories of children getting awful skin diseases from showering in or swimming in the, the town water there, which comes from the river. I mean, real developing country conditions in Australia, just an hour or two's drive from a major city like Mildura, I mean, an hour and a half's drive from a you know, internationally famous restaurant, airport and major city, um, you have got people living in pretty much third world conditions. Um, which you know, brings us, of course, to the indigenous community um, who also often live in terrible conditions in these regions. Uh, and you know, an example of the thousand cuts is almost none of the socio-economic assessment that's gone in behind the management of the Darling, almost none of that took place in Indigenous communities along the Darling River. Um, there was no socio-economic assessment at all between Burke and Wentworth, as far as I understand. Wow. You know, that's more than a thousand kilometres of river where federal, the federal bureaucracies didn't think it necessary to have a look at how the community was going in relation to their management of the system. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon. 
because TreeCR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to TreeCR. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast. So I've, I've just had a bit of a chat with Rod Campbell about uh, the fish killing on the Murray-Darling Basin, but it turns out to be a much bigger uh, issue, of course, than uh, merely the death of millions of fish. Yes, this is not an isolated incident. <laughs> no, it's not. So let's go on and uh, hear a little bit more about the actual politics and the administration that is obviously completely at a hand under the present government. Now, I've been looking at uh, your report, the Australian Institute's report, Coorongs Don't Make a Right. I read it. And th- th- it's actually quite flabbergasting. Uh, people may remember the most amazing report on uh, uh, Four Corners uh, a couple of months ago. But it's stated quite clearly uh, how the system that's being put up as oversight uh actually may be helping the degeneration of the river. So, for example, the state agencies intentionally provide false information to the CHU, uh, state agencies intentionally misusing the resources in order to achieve their own objectives. This one, individual water officers intentionally provide false information and or misuse resources in order to achieve their own private objectives, which may include commercial gain for themselves and or their family or associates, unauthorised access or misuse of environmental water by private landowners. Now, this is coming from an internal audit done by the Commonwealth Environmental water holder that they commissioned from Ernest and Young. I'm reading this and I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, and uh, as you've just explained, it's in an Australia Institute report, but those words weren't written by the Australia Institute. They were written by consultants to the government. Um, And that document, uh, I can assure you, it was not published and publicised widely it only came out after a sustained effort <clears throat> from South Australian Senators Rex Patrick and Sarah Hanson-Young um, to get some of those documents out. So there's a massive culture of secrecy and non-transparency within those bureaucracies that we're talking about within the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, within the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder or the CHU and within the Department of Agriculture, to say nothing of the State Department. Uh, who, as Ernst and Young pointed out, all have their own agendas. And they also have no compulsion to actually... Uh, everything's done... Everything Chu does is based on a goodwill and that they uh, are relying on verbal and other non-legally binding agreements in managing its $3 billion, let me say it again, $3 billion worth of environmental water. Yeah, this is a key point, and um, even for you know, even if you're not interested in the environment of the Murray-Darling Basin, even though I'd argue all Australians should be, but even if you're not someone who's generally interested in environmental issues, there's a lot of money at stake here. Taxpayers are putting $13 billion into the Murray-Darling Basin plan, uh, and the current uh, value of the 
water holder, Chew's portfolio is apparently around $3 billion. Um, yeah, we're, we're talking in the billions of dollars here that, as you've just read and as an audit of the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder has found, it's managed not with rigorous processes and legal rights, but it's managed based on a system of handshakes, winks and nods. And tax, you know, it's just not good enough for taxpayers, let alone uh, for the environments that it's supposed to protect and manage. Now, it's fascinating. The Kurong uh, issue is very interesting because... Uh, it it appears that uh, South Australia South Australian Water, which is the or a state uh, authority that chooses to send particular waters eventually into particular flows, even though they're given a certain amount of water to do whatever they're supposed to do, they've chosen to constantly put water into what's called the, the these lakes. Where they there's a whole lot of there's a regatta and things like that. This is a lake system that precedes uh, the Coorong, which is at the end. It's the filtration system at the end of the system, which is a internationally renowned bird sanctuary area. They continually put water into the area that's uh, required for uh, a regatta over environment. That's what. That's how I'm reading it. Would that be a false? Yeah, that, that's, a, yeah that's absolutely <laughs> right. So that that's a key example of why the federal environmental water holder is powerless to get its water where it actually wants it, because the the water holder <clears throat> is a small office in Canberra. They don't have the controls to the weirs and the locks. Um, they don't have you know, masses of staff out there looking at uh, the water or even on satellite pictures and things like that. They basically have to negotiate with uh, the ri- river operators and the state agencies to be able to get the water where it's going, and they don't actually have any legal rights to be able to enforce that. And so an example is that was in our report and <coughs> highlighted in uh, Ernst & Young's audit was that South Australia uh, often takes... South Australia is entitled to a particular amount of water to flow over its borders, which changes with the months of the year, that the, the other states are <coughs> required to deliver. Uh, and there's a, somewhat of a complex system of the way South Australia can bank its entitlements. Um, but if the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder decides, ooh, uh, for ecological purposes, um, you know, for all the amazing birds and things that you sto- saw in Storm Boy, which is set in the Coorong, um, we'd better get some water down there. <clears throat> they can send it into South Australia, but once it's in South Australia, uh, they can't control where it goes. And South, the South Australian management has quite an incentive to make sure the lower lakes are full of water for boating and some major tourism events and the economies uh, of the towns around the lower lakes. And they're able to just <coughs> uh, essentially use environmental water for that purpose and bank their entitlement for another day. 
Um, and yeah, this this comes as a shock to people who work who work in water policy area or pay some attention to it, because generally South Australia is seen uh, as the, the victim state uh, because it's at the bottom end of the basin. Um, and you know, it's Adelaide's water supply that's on the line. It is its recreational, uh, key recreational lakes and rivers um, that are all essentially at the mercy of the states further up the basin. Um, so South Australia is generally seen as as the victim state, and often it is. <coughs> um, but once water gets over the border into South Australia, they don't cover themselves in glory with transparency and accountability on how it's managed. But it's important to really go, really go to where the problems are. Uh, and some of the key problems are up in the north of the basin, far from Adelaide and South Australia and those problems. And, and north of the Menindee Lakes where, where the fish kills are, right up into uh, what's largely cotton-growing country, uh, up around the border rivers and the, where the, the top of the Barwon-Darling system, the infamous Cubby Station is up there and a number of other uh, big, big cotton stations <coughs> where we've seen those, those allegations and I think there's been some charges laid and guilty pleas made uh, of water theft, of pumping water that people had no right to into massive private storages wow. up in the northern basin. Unbelievable. And obviously it was part of their business plan because whatever they're charged with and whatever their whatever slap on the wrist they get is obviously less lesser than the actual water collection. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I know I'm jumping so what, the gun there, but it's it's a yeah. common outcome. So what? So what you need to realise is that up in the northern basin, the rivers don't don't sort of look like uh, like the Yarra or the Maribyrnong. Um, they they often have very variable flows. They they can be in flood or not have any water in them at all, or dry out to very low flows. And it's also very very flat up there. So when it, when it's in flood, a lot of water flows over the land uh, in what they call overland flows and so what has what essentially the business model of places like Cubby Station uh, are based on is building long levee banks um, that aren't all that high really by you know if you're used to dams uh, like the ones around Melbourne um, then they're not very high or very impressive, but they are very long, and they divert huge amounts of water that are flowing over the land, and they divert them into private dams, uh, or that were pumped into private dams. And so it's this what they call uh, floodplain harvesting, this harvesting of the water flowing over the plain, rather than sucking it out of the river. Uh, and putting that into huge private storages, that's a contributor to why there's a lot less water getting down the Darling River, and that's a huge contributor to the fish kills that you're seeing. And I guess Uh, that means a complete change in the ecology of the entire landscape. 
Absolutely. You're absolutely right. uh, There's a huge change in the ecology of the floodplains. So there's been there's a lot of attention put on the health of the river, um, but across this huge flat northern part of the basin, the river itself you can't divorce having a healthy river from having a healthy floodplain, and uh, it's this absolutely unregulated floodplain harvesting um, that is one of the real culprits <coughs> in the, the poor management of this. And what absolutely gobsmacks me every time uh, our senior water researcher, Marianne Slattery, talks to me about it is that there is no public information. Indeed, as far as we know, there is no information held by the government on the volumes of these dams, of the private storages uh, that are off the river. It's where these overland flows get pumped into. We have no idea how much water is in them at the moment. And so it's, I, I would argue, impossible for the offices like the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and the Murray Darling Basin Authority to do their job when they don't know how much water is being held in private storages in the north of the basin. I could see why they would think that uh, uh, siphoning off that flow was a very clever idea. I mean, you can see that they think they're not doing anything wrong because it's such a simplistic way of looking at the issues that we're actually dealing with. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about simplistic people, though. Uh, they're, you know, we're talking about major corporate agribusiness with a lot of uh, foreign or uh, tax haven-based capital. Um, we're, we're not talking about um, you know, dumb farmers who don't know any better. No. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that every farmer I've ever met in the Murray-Darling Basin knows an awful lot about this and what's going on, and most of them are really very concerned. I guess one, one point I would like to throw in is that there is, we're not saying... I know there's a common view, and I think you and I discussed it briefly yesterday. Uh, My position is not that we shouldn't be growing cotton or that we shouldn't be growing rice. It doesn't matter which plant it is. If if we outlawed cotton tomorrow, another crop would come that would use the same amount of water. The issue is, are we managing the water properly? Have we got the numbers right on how much can be used for irrigation? Uh, how much is necessary for the environment? Do we have the regulatory and engineering structures in place uh, or or not in place? Or do we need to take out some levy banks um, to make to make that happen? <clears throat> and I think it's abundantly clear, and from the fish kills in Menindi, um, that that's not happening. You're listening to Free CR, eight five five AM. The voice of the community. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, you're here with Annie and Rebecca and we've got Joe Toscano on the line. I know it's all a bit slow motion since my shoulder's still having to repair itself. I have to do that in a very slow manner. G'day Joe, how are you? I'm well and I'm, I'm in awe of you people up there. Uh, because we got up early? The morning. No, I'm in awe because you're up there. On a Saturday morning, week after week, week after week, trying to be, bring people up to date with what's happening 
society. Just mm. extraordinary effort from you, Mob. That uh, me, uh, the fish kill along the Murray Darling is just gobsmacking. What well, is? Well, I was up there uh, over Christmas. I did ten days. Actually, went up to uh, look at all that area, and it's quite obvious that uh, private enterprise really has nothing to offer regional and outback uh, Australia. It's really a matter of uh, government intervention at uh, most levels, and uh, all private enterprise is doing up there is basically destroying what's left of a uh, mighty uh, network of rivers and plains and let. Yeah, talk about make you weep. I mean, I mean, I travelled over 6,000 kilometres by car all over that area and uh, I saw only one river that was really surviving, that was the Murray. There's nothing else. Everything else is dry. It's uh, windy. The topsoil has been ripped off. Cows are still being uh, reared on areas where, uh, you know, nothing should be there. It's just... just yeah, oh, I'd recommend to people, if they get the opportunity to go and actually see what's happening. Yeah, true. In Australia. Well, we actually got you to talk, got you to uh, get up and have a yarn with us because of the Tunnaminaway and Melboy Heaney commemoration tomorrow. Tell us all about. You've got. It's not only the commemoration, which is incredibly important, but also you've got other demands. Now that this has well, been won. Well, we don't have demands at my age. We have suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Gentle and, uh, suggestions. A persuasive, forceful suggestion. Okay, sorry. It, it's all very well over the years that people have been, you know, agitated. Well, first of all, I'll give you the story. Tundaminaway, Morbohina, Petirana, Planobina and Truganini were five survivors of the last 82 Aboriginal Tasmanians uh, left after a 33-year war in Tasmania by the colonisers from 1802 to about 1835. And 17 of them were taken from Flinders Island to Melbourne and Victoria to civilise the uh, Victorian blacks um, by the uh, by the authorities. Now, after a few years, everything broke down, and five of these five of the seventeen number of died, number have been um, given away as a free labour to squatters. These five took up a, a struggle in the in the Mornington Peninsula, the Dandenongs, and the outskirts of Melbourne, and over an eight-week period, they caused consternation. They um, raided huts, burnt down squatters. Uh, settlements. Settlements, yeah, they burnt down their squatters. Settlements. And uh, it took a long, long time, and only with the help of Aboriginal black trackers from uh, the Victorian group that uh, were eventually tracked down and uh, arrested. They thought they'd all been killed during the shootout, but not one of them had been killed. They were tried in 1841. The two men Morbohina and uh, Tadaminaway were uh, found guilty of uh, murder because two uh, white sealers uh, uh, had been um, murdered during, well, had been killed during that uh, that campaign. Uh, interestingly, no, uh, they always spared uh, women and children, always removed from the uh, squatters' huts, and uh, they were left alone, unlike what happened to their people. But eventually, uh, they were tried, they were found guilty of murder. Uh, the three women, Planobina, Putirana and Truganini, were found uh, not guilty of being accessories after the fact. And they were uh, sentenced to hung, and they were hung on the 20th of January, 1842. The first two people officially executed by the uh, fledging Victorian authorities. And at that execution, over 5,000 people 
uh, almost half the population of Victoria turned up to see this execution. This is, a, this is a great story. This is a great story. It's about love. It's about struggle. It's about passion. It's about resistance. And it is an extraordinary story that really had been forgotten for many, many years, apart from, you know, uh, Tasmanians and some Victorians uh, in the Aboriginal community. And after a 10-year struggle, well, it was actually about 12 years, we have finally twisted the arm of the Melbourne City Council to build the first major monument to the frontier wars in the capital city in this uh, country on, on in 2016. The memorial was built. And it was built on the site of the execution. Exactly. It was built on the site of the execution. I don't know how it happened, but that little parcel of land was still council land. It hadn't been built on, and uh, there's, there's extraordinary monuments being built there after a long consultative process and a number of Aboriginal artists were... Uh, engaged after an open competition and it was eventually built. Now, since 2004, we've been holding a commemoration and we've held it for a commemoration for a number of reasons. One, to acknowledge what happened in the past. Two, to acknowledge that the uh, sins of the past still have a profound impact on, on the present, especially among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. Yeah. And three, that, that we need a reconciliation process which is based on justice. Now, we've been fighting that campaign now for a number of years with obviously mixed success. But interesting, in the last two years, there seems to have been a bit of a community revulsion by a minority of the community regarding holding uh, the birth of this nation, the celebrations to mark the birth of this nation on Invasion Day, the 26th of January. So over the last two years, we've changed our tack in terms of what we want. And we want two things. One, we want uh, the site at which we're, we think they're buried out at Queen Victoria Market to actually be surveyed with ultrasound equipment to see if their bodies are still there. And then if their bodies are still there, then they should be... Discussions should obviously begin with uh, their descendants in Tasmania for re repatriation. That's a short-term demand, at which we've been negotiating with the Melbourne City Council and various authorities now for a number of years and not got very far. And the second thing we're interested in is because... This was a day when the colonial authorities, the British authorities, executed two Aboriginal resistance fighters for resisting colonisation. This is an excellent day, considering that, you know, invasion days on the 26th of January. The 25th of January would be an excellent day to be designated as First Nations Freedom Fighters Days. Because obviously across this country, in the 220-plus independent nations that existed, on the continent and the islands surrounding the continent, there was resistance at every level. And each one of these groups knows who resisted and the price they paid. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if on the 20th of January across this country, there are ceremonies around the country marking the tens of thousands of men, women and children, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, who died in that colonisation struggle, which spread from 1788 up to the 1930s. And I'm talking about direct physical contact. Oh, they were uh, still shooting people in the 40s and the 50s. Well, you've got the Maralinga thing where people were just left yeah. to rot. Uh, there were uh, instances of massacres in the 1930s. And the thing is, we, we see today, in every day we hear about the consequences of a coloni this colonisation process amongst not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but us as a, as a community that refuses to acknowledge this. And it was interesting in nine... In 2017, one of the major, one of the three major demands 
made by the delegates which met at Uluru from many of the uh, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups was to a truth-telling commission. Truth needs to be told. And I'm thinking, here's a monument. You know, in a major capital city, we have a commemoration every year to mark what these men and women did. Yeah. So why shouldn't we have commemorations around the country on this day to honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander resistance? What a great idea. And uh, not to mention what a clever fellow you are to uh, change the conversation from one of uh, uh, aggression to uh, a day, uh, to something that uh, um, changes the discussion to a positive. Well, it is a positive. Look, look, I think trouble with the, you know, what's left of the so-called left, I hate for the tautology there, but uh, is that we tend to harp on about negatives and that we're not, you know, abolishing Australia Day, fine, okay? I've got no problems with that. I've been, uh, my late wife and myself have been arguing for that for 40 years. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have been arguing for that since 1938, since the uh, conference in Sydney, 80 years ago, 81 years ago. But the thing is, what we need to do is actually we need to reclaim space, we need to reclaim dates, we need to create our own ceremonies. It's all very well saying we want you know, the frontier wars to be acknowledged in the uh, war memorial, fine. But what we need to do is we need to bring these stories and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in conjunction with, uh, you know, Europeans need to bring these stories to the attention of the public. And what better day than the 12th of January, which was done with the kind of authority legally executed Aboriginal for resistant white colonisation. I mean, 99.9% of the people who were killed were obviously killed illegally. They were poisoned, they were shot, they were butchered, you know, they were pushed off their lands. But this is, this is the British authorities saying at the end point, if you resist, this is what's going to happen to you. Because Judge Willis, when he said this was not about terror, causing terror in the community, this was about setting an example that this is what happens if you resist colonisation. So Joe, because um, you're beginning to break up, uh, right. but uh, it's important for people to know about the memorial tomorrow, so give yeah, them the midday. details. Midday, uh, Sunday the 20th, which is tomorrow. Uh, we start at midnight uh, from 12 to 1. Uh, Callum Briggs, a senior Bunurong elder, our patron, will be starting off proceedings with her acknowledgement of welcome to country. And we've got a number of guest speakers. Uh, and then after that, at one o'clock, we walk from the uh, memorial site to, to the Queen Victoria Markets, where people have an opportunity to express their opinions. It'll be a busy day tomorrow because the Queen Victoria Market will be in full swing. It's a great day. Yeah, we, that's great. What a coincidence! We, yeah, well, it happened. This, this <laughs> but we want people. We want people to bring flowers to the monument and for the uh, execution, the execution site, and what we think is the burial site. And we also want people to bring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags on the day uh, so that people know exactly what we're on about. Because many years, uh, people just look at us and wonder, what's all this about? But we do have leaflets uh, for bystanders. What I'd like to see is the Tanabinaway and Moorbohina monument to be more popular than Captain's Cook Cottage as far as tourists are concerned. This is a great chance to bring your kids. It's a family-friendly affair. Uh, it's, uh, it's a commemoration. Bring your kids to 
teach them about this country's history and let's start making amends. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you very much. And like I said, I'm in, I'm in awe of you. men hanged here in Melbourne town Down a Minowaden old boy in a wooden bow before the crown January 1842 5,000 stood on Bowen Street With a twisted sense of justice Amid the cheers dust and heat Far from their ancestral homes Down in Van Diemen's land They knew their lives would be in vain If they didn't take a stand And Dunham in a way's first memory Was the slaughter of his kin When the war of dispossession Landed at Cape Grim his clan if he ever had the chance and he saw all the bloody suffering of the settlers advance all the red coats and the convicts tried to wipe them out with lead sent their black line across the island saying no one would be spared On the friendly mission trail Spreading hurt among the people To survive we must set sail And so many lie in unmarked graves On Flinders Island shore We struggle to remember What was friendly anymore Fifteen went with Robinson the Port Phillip Colony Where they called him Chief Detector Of Aborigine And they helped with making contact Where no white men had been Five lost faith in protection Is of the living hell it seemed Across Western Port, as history will attest, with no harm to women or children over an eight week long campaign. We shoot out an arsenal as they set fire to the grain. Turn them in a way, no boy, Remember 
Watson, the minor Watson son out here. And they were surely out to kill them, cause they never could commit. Reclaiming of the land they stole from the native dispossessed. So they sent out every troop of horse and tracker to the nest. And as they waited for the onslaught, they saw two figures in the dark. If they couldn't tell the whalers For their bullets made their mark well, They had every reason to fear men like this With their memories of the past When the hand that raped and pillaged Was the hand that steered the mast And as the troops began their awful siege They fought off every a miracle Five survived Huddled on the ground The three women Were acquitted And the men Condemned to die An example Must be set, said the judge Lest other rebels Try And as they lay the fighters In the ground They hoped their names would Quickly fade, lest we forget the heroes and the sacrifice they made. They remind us there's more to do if forever to be free. May the spirit of resistance live on in you and me. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and uh, it's fascinating to uh, think that uh, this memorial was uh, created and uh, um, I mean going going into history and finding the stories of people who have done such amazing things as these two fellows Tanaminawe and Melboy Heaney uh, this it pushes against the onslaught of mainstream uh, dream-making to uh, pluck out of the past histories true stories. Uh, and Joe Toscano is a master at this. Uh, he's got a great eye for it. But uh, the struggle that the committee went through to ensure that uh, the uh, City Council made available land and then were able to make this memorial possible is only one step in um, making positive change in the awareness of uh, the Australian population. Now, for people who want to go to the memorial, that's tomorrow, 12 to 1. As Joe said, then there's the walk down to uh, the the grave sites. Um, 3CR is going to do a broadcast, do a live cross 
to the speeches. So that starts at 12. Uh, the location of the memorial, the space, is near uh, RMIT. It's between RMIT and the city bars at the at the top of the peak of the hill that leads up towards Trades Hall. So it's that little space there. So if you make your way there, you will find that there are people collected in that spot tomorrow at 12. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, uh, we couldn't raise Izzy because Izzy's got more important things to do than <laughs> yes. talk to us this morning. Um, it, it, not surprising, really. No. Because she's the most fantastic person. Yes. But you can tell us a little bit about the uh, sale for justice? Yeah, so just uh, last couple of weeks they were down on French Island um, doing a Skillshare, um, so doing some sailing and also just sharing, uh, yeah, what what different skills that people had um, in preparation for uh, launching in May. Um, so yeah, and their aim is to get to Manus Island. Yes, yes, and so they'll be going up the east coast. Um, so there's opportunities for people to support uh, the the voyage um, in the land convoy as well. If um, people want to get involved, just go to sail number four justice dot org, um, and you can find out more about how you can support. Um, yeah, support this project. And, uh, yeah, so they just gave some uh, report back about their um, pirate Skillshare, um, just saying thanks to all the locals that helped them out with food and um, homegrown produce, local mussels, like, lucky them. <laughs> um, yeah, homegrown seafood. Um, they said they had a great crew over the past 10 days and um, – yeah, they they had a few adventures as well, being swept out to sea. And uh, lucky they had some of the um, West Papuans who were with them that knew how to read the tides and, and were able to get them back to shore. Um, sounds like a bit of an adventure. Uh, the sea is always an yes, adventure. Yes, yes. Always hold it in great respect. Yeah, true. Uh, and they also were a part of um, the big paddle out against AGL. Um, so that was at the start of the week. Um, Tell us about this. They had, yeah, they had a lot of people turn out um, against AGL, the gas company, um, to protest. What's uh, I, I am not up to date on what's because what, AGL's what the got fingers in, in lots of pies. Yes. I know about wind farms down in South Australia. Mm, yeah, but this is the, about um, uh, drilling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, probably. Yep. I, I don't know, actually, yes, so okay. I'm not going to make something up. We should find yes, out. Yes, yes, but there were a lot of people that um, went down. And this is to, in Sydney, right? No, um, down in Melbourne. Oh, yes, so yeah. yes, it is. Yep. It's about drilling. Yep. So there was quite a few people that turned out in their little kayaks and boats and stuff to um, do a protest last we week. Should, yeah, we should find out more about this because yep. obviously it didn't hit the mainstream media no. at all. No, but... There were, like, apparently there was quite a big turnout of people in their little boats and stuff. Um, yeah, and learning learning about a bit of history about the staunch community resistance in the area. So, yeah, yeah let, we'll follow up on that. Which mm. is a bit interesting to uh, uh, also note that there were uh, rallies down at the foreshore near Warrnambool over the issue of uh, horse racing 
using the beach for training horses mm. down there. And uh, just recently there was a rally down there and it was uh, the... The uh, one of the new uh, Victorian senators uh, went down and spoke uh, in support of the uh, demonstration community uh, actions against this um, decision to allow racehorses to use public property to uh, uh, train uh, what is a commercial outfit, and they have alternatives; they don't have to yeah. use. Uh, public the beaches. public beaches uh, and the habitat of the plovers yep. uh, to do this. It's just a, a, a cheap option, effectively. Yep. Um, so that was an interesting thing too that turned up and mm. didn't appear in the uh, hasn't uh, during the summer season. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that uh, people have are being hooded plovers about uh, the destruction of the hooded plovers uh, domain. But anyway, we'll remember the uh, sale for justice yep. uh, with a bit of monkey music, uh, which they uh, performed at their launch earlier, well, late last year. Yep. What we got, Mr Monkey? To Columbus, heroes that make me wonder When we gonna stop celebrating pillage and plunder Rape and genocide no longer can be denied With generations bent bent on generating divide So let the truth be told, acknowledged and vocalized Let the truth be told, acknowledged so folks can rise up Rise up, rise up Celebrated sailor, navigator, and explorer Scoping out the Antipodean fauna and flora Sponsored by your system infamous for waging horror On natives with genocide and enforced diaspora That's the aura Out the box like Pandora Ask the Wurundjeri people Walpuri or Yoda Yoda Ask any elder that you happen to meet If Terra Nullius was anything but lies and deceit now, if I thought I could right wrongs, I'd be writing wrong. If I thought I could save the world, should I give up and writing songs? Play cricket, win the media's attention. Then flip the interview with some things they forgot to mention. Colonialism, global ambition, more land acquisition. Persistent, no jurisdiction. Sifting through the lies to find the truth that's been hidden. Take a stand, get branded or stand. Accused of sedition, comprehend. Deconstruct the spin versus the real deal Unrevealed to fuel the fire in the wind Episodically, advantage been lopsided Philosophically, the new world order We gotta fight it, cause it's not that new And it's sure not what we order Chaos the moment the first fleet touched border Rounds of ammunition before they even dropped anchor Generations later, not enough to fix or heal the anger From smallpox laced deliberately inside a quilt To sell blocks where race levies too heavy on the guilt Abuse of power like the powder in the flower that killed. It seems that racism's the mortar in this empire built. 
Long as sovereignty's off the bill, blood's still gonna spill. Long as weapons no longer mines, but a new uranium deal. The final battle, it's on. Indigenous hold strong. Come on, tell them what we chanting in modern day Babylon. From Cook to Columbus, heroes that make me wonder when we gonna stop celebrating pillage and plunder. Rape and genocide no longer can be denied with generations bent, bent on generating divide. Let the truth be told. Acknowledge and vocalize, let the truth be told. Acknowledge so folks can rise up. Wise up. Wise up. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka. Gets up one talks. You're on 3CR with Annie and Rebecca, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Annie, and to Rebecca, and all of your listeners. It's great to be back with you. Yes, that's right. There's, I mean, holidays are great, but getting back into the groove is good too. Uh, yes, well, they're a different experience when you're retired, but uh, I've had the great joy of having my partner home with me for three weeks or so, and it's been terrific. Yeah, that's nice. That's great. Um, well, there's a couple of things. I wanted to, because you're on the spot in Sydney, can you give us any uh, understanding of the effect of uh, the arrest of uh, a long-term a- activist, Danny, Danny Lim, and uh, he walks around with signs, very pithy, but he has been uh, was collected up by the police and a bit roughed up. Yes, he has. And uh, Danny is one of two outstanding uh, veterans of um, the left in Sydney that we should make a brief comment about. Um, Danny was arrested because he he is a distinct personality who is a visible presence uh, all through the CBD and inner suburbs on various occasions, but also at all of the big events and rallies. Well, I should say big and small. And he wears sandwich boards with humorous and incisive slogans and remarks. And, uh, and we've got these... people like that here. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, uh, uh, he has been arrested before because one of his placards had what the authorities deemed to be offensive language. Uh, but the um, uh, And on appeal, a judge said, well, really, most Australians would not find that offensive and therefore uphold the appeal, and he was able to continue uh, in his usual style. Now, he's, a, he's quite an old activist, and uh, just a week or so ago, he was, in effect, assaulted and arrested by a trio of police officers in a public space in the new Barangaroo development in... Um, uh, in right in uh, the CBD on the waterfront. And the upshot of that was he was very heavily manhandled, uh, much to the anger of about 30-odd local passers-by who were walking through the sort of food court uh, where I think where he was. And uh, But he was arrested and he's been charged and he's decided to fight the case. And uh, he was—he uh, dem- he's demonstrated at his Facebook pages the damage, the bruises on his arms, the pain that he was in, the separation from his uh, his pet puppy, all those sorts of things. He's so quite a real... small person too, physically. Yeah, and he's a small person, and uh, I mean, three police. 
he's not unhealthy. I don't think. No, he's no, unhealthy, but but he's a small person. He was in effect bullied, and it was um, it was quite sad actually to see these three uh, officers of the law um, behaving in the way they did. I mean, they were a sad sight. He was not. But it's really reflect. I mean, it's not far away where um, white settlement occurred. You know. Um, and which, of course, was a penal, a penal settlement, and uh, and uh, so quite appropriate in some ways that the modern day penal powers, um, from the point of view of the ruling class, the penal powers are applied at the um, at the place where they were uh, introduced in Australia in 1788. Well, you know that recalls uh, a joke that well, sort of a joke that I, I saw um, Dylan Moran who came out a couple of years ago, and one of his lines was, oh, this is the most uh, well-appointed uh, prison I've ever been to. <laughs> yes. Yes, well, uh, the, uh, uh, the the tradition continues. It's not far away from the rocks, actually, and there's a fabulous picture of Jack Mundy being arrested by a group of four or five uh, officers of the law because there was a green band action happening in the rocks just around the corner from Barangaroo. So Danny Lim is part of a proud tradition of protest in that area around Barangaroo. Well, why did they arrest him anyway? I mean, is he, is he a bit like the canary in the, the uh, mines, you know, that there's this uh, stepping up of uh, removal of agitation? Well, uh, I... I, I I, th- I think um, there is an escalation of the penal powers and there's some good discussion about that happening at a number of websites, actually, uh, that take several forms. Uh, Danny, there, there's a terrific... If anyone wants to understand a little bit more, just go to the Sydney Criminal Lawyers website yeah, yeah, and their really blog. Good. They're very they good. They explain what's going on with protest laws generally as well as um, the specifics of Danny Law's uh, uh, Danny Lim's uh, arrest. We've got some other things to talk about. There was a really big win in Wollongong uh, just uh, two days ago uh, or so uh, yes. at uh, Wollongong Coal. Well, we should talk about that and also uh, spend a little bit of time talking about superannuation. But before I do, a bit of late news. What? Uh, one of the great leaders of the Australian left, Eric Aaron. Oh. died yesterday at 99 years old, just two months short of his 100th birthday. Yes. And we should say Bale, Eric Aarons, and solidarity and uh, so on to his family. He was one of the last, the very last of the generation of socialist and communist activists who were born near the end of the World War I. Uh, and and they, they were ex- their whole lives were shaped by that experience, and of course, also the Russian Revolution and the Great Depression. Uh, he was a great leader of the Communist Party in the mid 1960s because he, along with his brother, uh, led the adoption of a new course for the CPA, the Communist Party, that rejected Stalinism. And that meant that the, uh, uh, partly for dateline purposes, but um, the Communist Party of Australia was the very first to, uh, led by uh, Eric and uh, Laurie. Aaron's um, supported Dubček's Prague Spring and condemned the invasion, the first political party in the world to condemn the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Mm. Uh, at, at, he's also a sculptor 
and maybe we can spend or provide some more information for your listeners as uh, because it's only 24 hours since he passed away. Yes. Um, Thank you so for telling us. Just making a little, a, a small point, it, it strikes everywhere. I'm sure <laughs> strikes you everywhere. are covering yes. the, probably the biggest strike in the history of humankind in India. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, if you are covering it, I won't, uh, I won't go into it because I do have a, in, information of what the primary demands of the strike No, are. no, we, that was covered in Stick Together. No, you, oh, stick, oh, focus, oh. focus on the, what, we, what, you, okay. what we started so off with. Let's, let, let's make a few remarks about Wonga Lily. Wonga Lily is just near Wollongong. Yep. And it's been the site of a terrific uh, enterprise bargaining dispute organised by the mining division of the CFMMEU. And the latest news is that as of Thursday, this group of workers who were just a few weeks ago uh, casualised, permanent casualised workers. And we're talking uh, about 100% of the workers at this facility. Were permanent casuals. And the union described... Permanent casuals. What a load of rubbish. Mm -hmm. Casuals. Doesn't make sense. that's That's the particular angle that we must comment on. Because the union described their status as permanent casuals as one of the worst in the industry, as bad as anything else that the union has seen. But the workers have got themselves organised. They've joined the union, they've got themselves organised, and they've pursued an enterprise agreement, and they escalated their industrial action a week ago and decided to extend it. And as a result of that, we can say that on Thursday... They finalised an enterprise agreement that matches the standards of other enterprise agreements negotiated by union workers in the region. That's right. Now, they had the lowest pay. There were everything about their state of employment would tell them to join a union. Yes, that's right. And they did eventually. And they that's did. right. And they got the result they wanted through their own determination and the solidarity of other part of other workers who are employed in the same industry under different agreements, uh, really well organised by the MUA. And I'll have to say that it is a classic case of the old slogan, educate, agitate and organise. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I said MUA, I meant, I meant the mining division of the CFMEU. Now, and I'll have to say, you know how you put the extra M in? Their logo hasn't changed on their site. It's still CFMEU, so yeah. I'm, 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 I don't know where you stand with that. But anyway. Yes, well, uh, the, the important point is that it, uh, this dispute overlaps, of course, with the, the mining division making a really important step forward in the fight against the permanent casuals wrought. Yes. You may recall there was a big federal court decision last year which found in favour of the workers and the union that said that depending on the the text of the words in the award and the enterprise agreement and how they relate with each other, it is likely that probably thousands of workers in the mining industry are defined as permanent casuals, but in fact are permanent workers, and therefore they are entitled to things like uh, recreation, holiday leave. Yeah, the idea that a person can be given a roster for a year in advance precludes the notion that they are casual. Yes, well, um, that's that's the concept, yes. 
Yeah, so it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, than that's that. right. It is a little <laughs> bit more. Com- that that's yeah. what people would naturally think, but yes, there is some. There are devil is always in the detail. And the comp- the complexity comes in depending upon the language that's in that's right. an enterprise agreement, if the, if it's operative, if there is one, and also the language in the award. And I'll have to say that this is probably one of the reasons for why being part of a union is a good idea because there's so, it, the legalese and the uh, the way an EBA is written is needs to be scrutinised by lawyers that are on your side. Well, not just lawyers. Um, the workers themselves and the union. The the of course, what's going on is that the employers are fighting it back against the defeat they suffered in the court. Right? Yeah, that's uh, right. They're appealing. And, well, and, no, they're not appealing it. They're changing their tack. And and they are appealing, and they'll be in the court next month, I believe. And they are being supported by the government, Kelly O'Dwyer, the minister for workplace relations, etc. And uh, their intention is to break apart this quite important breakthrough made by a Mr Skeen and his union, the mining division of the, of the CFMMNU. Now, this is, this is very important because the government, of course, is not in a position to be able to change the law uh, because leading up to an election, it would be very complicated to do that. And so we have, we are on the cusp of a significant breakthrough because of the MU, uh, the mining division's strategy and tactics, which I think is is very good. So they link together Wonga Lily type disputes and campaigns with the overall uh, campaign that creates a new foundation in law around uh, the definition of what is a permanent worker and what is a casual worker. I have to jump in here and remind listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking to Don Sutherland. Don, because we've got a limited amount of time, can we move on to superannuation? Well, yes, and because of the limited amount of time, we won't cover all the points. First point, I want to make sure that uh, uh, there is an alert goes out to all workers, the union representatives, delegates and so on, to pay very close attention to what is going on with the Productivity Commission's latest report, released while half of us were more than half asleep over the Christmas break, which is an assault on workers through their unions being able to control uh, superannuation entitlements. The Productivity Commission report uh, is in two forms. There's a 700-page version, which is one reason why people find it difficult to pay much attention. And then there was about a 50-odd-page version, and we should be paying attention to it. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, we're talking about, nine at the moment, a 9.5% portion of the wage uh, increase in your weekly wage. So if you think in terms of receiving a 9.5% increase in your weekly wage, would you really like the private banks and other corporate institutions that have been under investigation into the Royal Commission into the banks and finance system to have greater control over how that money is controlled and how that money is used. Well, you know, superannuation is basically the, um, what is it, the uh, financial me- method of... Uh, of uh, 
old age pension, uh, financialising the uh, the uh, old age pension. And the notion of the superannuation is that superannuation is actually part of your wages package, salary package, just as you said. So uh-huh. this is actually money that belongs to the worker. And yeah. But because it's uh, amassed in such a large amount, uh, it's, uh, it's the next uh, huge reservoir of money that the sticky fingers of the financial class wants to get their fingers on. And for some reason or other, this government seems to think that all workers in Australia are stupid. And we, um, and we, have, we have to... What the Productivity Commission is doing in its report... Uh, and what the Productivity grand- Commission is that seems to be doing is taking a position within our political system which it has no business taking. Oh, no, 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 I don't agree with that. I think that it's doing exactly what it is designed to do. It, it, the Productivity Commission evolves out of previous forms of a statutory authority under the aegis of the government, and its role, it, it, is, it is a primary element in the architecture that created neoliberalism, capitalism in Australia. So it is doing its job in well, that sense. Yeah. Now, but it, but it's dealing with areas that it's got no business to deal with. Go on, anyway. It, well, um, uh, from the point of view of fixing problems in the system, it is doing what it is designed to do, which is to make workers pay for failures in the system and to ensure that unions that represent workers are removed from any influence in the system. So what it is doing, it's grabbed hold of uh, some obvious weaknesses that have evolved over time, and they're real. And secondly, they've grabbed hold of the real changes in the composition of the workforce to use those two things to attack and dismantle one of the great strengths of the system from the point of view of workers. Workers' access to superannuation as a supplement to the pension came about because of unions and the link between, created by unions, the link between industrial awards and enterprise agreements also uh, that are based on negotiations between employers and unions. That's one of the great strengths. But that's an ideological red flag from the point of view of a neoliberal statutory authority like the Productivity Commission. Now, uh, uh, and there are big bickies at stake now. Um, One uh, financial commentator, almost sort of slavering in expectation, points out that sometime this year, the value of superannuation in Australia will trip over $3 trillion. Now, this is where we get to, and perhaps we won't have time to go much past this point. But superannuation is, of course a return to workers near or at their retirement to supplement the pension. Now, there are problems for workers inside that that are not being examined by uh, the Royal... Uh, by the... Uh, by the but that's uh, not what they're interested in. They're interested no, in the money. However, there is this. At the same time as all of this is going on, the capital, the new capital investment by Australian-based employers, both multinationals and Australian employers, has been declining. And it goes through patterns 
of decline over several years, and right now it is really low. It is anemic. And we're on the cusp of another recession. Therefore, how can you, how can you get new capital investment so that the employers themselves don't have to pay for it? Well, wow. You turn your attention to workers' superannuation. So what is going on here is an attempt to use workers' money in such a way that it ends up solving the new capital expenditure problem of Australia's employing class. And so ultimately... wage theft at a level that we have not ever seen before. Say that again. This is wage theft at a level we have never seen before. Now, it's not actually happening yet. It's being proposed. And it's being proposed in the anodyne language, the sort of comfortable, let's all, let's all be aware that there are lots of problems with the current system. Well, there are. But each one of those problems can be fixed without launching an assault on the fact that workers have union representatives sitting alongside of employer representatives in managing the, in managing successfully, overwhelmingly, the industry super funds. Well, so they, we, ha- they, we, should, they, we, we should actually finish it there because you can't top that. Thank you very much, Don, for explaining that as in language. That, I mean, I'm just ropeable about this. I, it just You know, of course, that uh, in America after the uh, 2008 financial disaster, that those same people then moved on to the Americans' pension funds. I just, it's, it's just... Un- of course they did. They, yeah. They, you see, they don't like giving up the 9.5% in the first place. <sighs> I hate it. I know, and it's not even it's their money. Because it's a, it, it's a deferred wage increase. Yeah, yeah. So they hate it, and they want to get it back so that they can, they don't have to spend as much out of the surplus that they've expropriated anyway. Oh, it's outrageous. Anyway, no, we have to go. Oh, yeah, quickly. The big, one of the big questions in this is, should the whole thing, the whole scheme, the whole architecture be nationalised? Now, I, I must say we have to be... I would normally say yes, mm. but we have to be cautious about it because some of the most pro-employer financial review-type financial commentators are now taking this seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, look. Anyway, that, we have to finish. We really do. We have to so finish. So, well, let's come back to it another time. We, we will. You might turn to Humphrey for a bit of analysis there. Yeah. Too. Good on you, Don. All the best to everybody. Thanks, mate. Bye for now. Yeah, oh, my scary times, scary times. Yeah. Uh, we, we literally have to finish. Um, today, we uh, went and found out about the Murray-Darling Basin and what's going on there. We went on to the uh, Tanaminaway and Melboyheny Memorial, which is on tomorrow, 12 to 1, in the location just near, uh, in that area, just between uh, the City Bars and RMIT, moving on to uh, talking to Don Sutherland. Don't forget that next week is Invasion Day. There's going to be a dawn service. Yep, from 5.30am at King's Domain Resting Place. And that's been called by Lydia Thorpe. Um, so King's Domain is that space just across the road from the Arts Centre, but a bit further down uh, away from the city.
Yeah. Okay, if you want to get down there. Uh, the uh, 10.30 at the Parliament steps for the major day and uh, there's going to be a live broadcast from 10.30 at, on 3CR. So uh, let's go with a day about, a song about Invasion Day. <laughs> Good day, mate. This is rap news on your radio waves. Reporting today on that distant Australian state. Where on the 26th of January they annually celebrate a date that they denominate Australia Day. But much as in the US of A with Columbus Day or Canada Day in Canada A, each year a debate takes place as to the way societies built on colonial occupation should celebrate the genesis of their cherished nation. So today we have an Australian correspondent from Channel 9. Can you hear me, Ken Othkan? Ken Othkan, here you go. I'm reporting from Australia. Come and live it. Provide effects on this amazing day When we take a national holiday off from hard yakka And celebrate with Barbies, beer and char tucker Mates, eskies, sheilas, the torpedo Vegemite miners, Tony Abbott, short speedos What exactly are you celebrating? I'll tell you, Robbo But first, before we begin I'd like to acknowledge the traditional robbers of this land Do you like what we've done with the place? Ain't it grand? Yeah, it all started here in 1788 After Captain Crook discovered this pristine real estate We were straight aliens Looking for a place to settle it We landed in Sydney with the first fleet of 11 ships It was no one's land, unpopulated, terranalist So we built fences, bridges, opera houses and deforested Made heaps of land for growing lambs And in time since that land was ours We started to mine, mine, mine And now, regardless of footy team, creed or ethnic persuasion We celebrate this day as one